Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, a partner in the Dillon Law Group, social media legend and free speech enthusiast. When I started the Coleman Nation podcast in the spring of 2021, its focus was on free expression and censorship on the internet. But as important as that subject is to me, which is very important, I felt hemmed in in the podcast. I wanted to spend more time talking to the interesting people I've met in my legal and free speech work without feeling a need to have them all make the same point. So I culminated the first series of the podcast and have started the second series. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations as much as I have recording them. Hello. Welcome to Culmination. I'm Ron Coleman, and I want to thank you very much for joining us. I actually saw a, a little interesting thing on YouTube that says that the, the first minute, the intro, is the entire key to keeping people in the video. And I haven't really appreciated that before. I think I've been a little bit too uh, casual and, and low-key about this. So what I'm going to do is actually um, cut off one of my limbs at the end of the video. Um, and But I've got it all figured out. Jeremy, my producer, takes care of everything, well, any problems that arise. So, you know, stay with us, stick with us. Um, I'm, and, and we're going to have a conversation today about a little bit about supply chains. No, 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 don't go. Don't go. Don't go. I'm going to, I'm going to literally, it's going to, it's really going to be, this is going to be great podcast, great video podcasting, but we're going to talk about trends, economic trends in the United States. Um, and, and uh, I'm, I'm particularly interested in an article that I'm going to talk about in more, in more detail that Jim wrote about called, we can't all run to Florida, which is really, really struck me because I can't tell you how many Twitter posts I get where people respond by telling me that move to Florida. To me, that's not an answer. I'm I'm not a man of Florida. I'm a man of New York. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. How are you? I'm doing great, Ron. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, thank you. You know, it, you, we mentioned right before we started recording that you're in Chicago, where, of course, I, I went to law school um, at, North, at Northwestern, where you, where you went to business school. Correct. Which is interesting to me because Northwest, I think of um, the Northwestern business as m more oriented to marketing people than to uh, the nuts and bolts types. How, how did you find yourself? I mean, just to, to, to give a little bit of background, Jim is an economist and a, a consultant, and he thinks about supply chain so that we don't have to. <laughs> is would that be a well, fair way of putting it absolutely and i tell you what no one in the right mind grows up saying that when i get older i want to be in supply chain well, all right okay so we answered the question <laughs> we all we all fall into it so <laughs> literally the way i got into supply chain was um my first job out of the military i was going through a management development program and the week i was doing training and procurement the procurement manager that was training me quit and the next thing i knew i was a procurement manager and then when i uh finished my MBA and went into consulting. They're like, oh, you know about procurement. You're now a procurement expert. So go for it. Go forth and prosper. And uh, I've never been able to get out of it. It sucked me in and I can't can't move away. But in fact, is a lot of people don't appreciate this since you you you, you raised that the issue of your having been exposed to this world of procurement in the military, that the great success of the United States in World War II had a lot to do with issues like procurement and logistics where 
there was a, a massive ratio of people who were not on the front lines to those who were on the front lines compared to about the Germans and the Japanese where those ratios were super thin. Yeah, ab absolutely. And in fact, it, it goes back further than that. And I don't know if this was intentional or not, but I'm actually working on a book about supply chain. And the first chapter is supply chain in the military. And if you go all the way back to people like Hannibal, Julius Caesar, and then up through uh, folks like Napoleon. Napoleon was had, terrible at it. They had different theories. And uh, it, when it worked, it worked well for Napoleon. When it didn't work, it was a disaster. Because uh, he, he, he basically planned on a campaign to last a certain number of days. And that's how much food he brought. And if it went longer, then they would have to live off the land. And sometimes it worked. And when you're in Russia in wintertime, it doesn't work at all. It certainly didn't work. Um, but no, this we, we definitely are going to go down a rabbit hole that I'm not sure how many people, notwithstanding my incredibly appealing introduction, are going to follow us down. <laughs> but on the other hand, a lot of Americans uh, who had never heard the term supply chain before in their lives heard it over the last couple of years when we found out that a lot of things that we take for granted, one of the things that has always been used as a contrast between the American consumer-oriented economy compared to a controlled economy or control centrally controlled economies, you go to the store, what do you want? It's on the shelf. You buy it, and there's a, a warehouse full of it, of more of it, if you want, whatever quantity you want. All of a sudden, COVID came, couldn't get toilet paper. What was it that happened during COVID that all of a sudden you, you couldn't get stuff? You couldn't get toilet paper. You could What was going right. on? So one of, the, one of the things I like to say, because I think a lot of people get this wrong, is that COVID did not cause the issues with supply chain. It exposed the issues with supply chain. And there are a number of factors that went in there a supply chain that was 12,000 miles long in order to get a battery to put into a car, a supply chain that was 15,000 miles long to get a computer chip to put into a car. Um, the fact that Americans have not invested in our infrastructure. I'll give you a really good example. We, uh, they did a study of the major ports in the world, the top 350 ports in terms of volume. The Port of Los Angeles and the Port of Long Beach, the top, the two busiest ports in America, ranked dead last in terms of efficiencies. So they don't, they haven't automated, they haven't done anything. They're just basically offloading ships the same way they did in the 1700s. Um, but they have cranes instead of people now, but no automation, no planning, no scheduling, not really working 24 seven. So we're seeing a lot of issues of things that just were overexposed. One other piece of it was an over-reliance on just-in-time inventory where we saw people not wanting to invest in inventory and just having it come in just at the last moment. That's great when it works. It's not so great when it doesn't. So you're a free market guy. We wouldn't be having this discussion. I mean, I, I listen, if I could get a non-free market person onto my show, I'd love to. But everything is so polarized now. But, you know, we met through our mutual friends who are, uh, you know, uh, free market oriented type folks. And, you know, is there a true free market answer to the problem of the lack of infrastructure, you know, I mean, ports have historically been considered to be a legitimate area of concern for government planning. Yep. On the other hand, we've learned among, among the many hard lessons we've learned in the last few years is that 
and you know that you've been in the military, so I have to tell you this. Governments <laughs> actually suck at planning. <laughs> they so, do. So they you say, do. you know, we can't leave this to, to the market because it, it, there's no sense in it. There's no planning. Let's have, we're from the government. We're here to help. What did Ronald Reagan say? Those are the most fearful, <laughs> fearsome words in the American language. Right. Um, so, so what? So so how do you how do you, how do you fix a problem like that? Well, look at the, there. It is actually being done by the private sector. The port of Charleston in uh, South Carolina is a privately operated port, and they had a couple of months where they were the became the largest port in the United States by volume, because people were sending stuff either through the canal or around the Horn and having it offloaded on the East Coast and shipped to other parts of the country because they didn't want to have the uncertainty of not knowing how long it would be waited to get offloaded in places like Long Beach or Los Angeles. So we're seeing ports invest in infrastructure, but it's it, it's industry that's doing it. It's it, it's not the government. They're not using, the, not using unions, so that helps from them as well to operate more frequently, uh, 24 well, more, more actually more 24-7. More frequently and also to be open to technological innovation. You know, I, I'm exactly. looking out the window from where I'm sitting uh, at the skyline of New York City. When I was a kid growing up in in New York, the New York, uh, New York Harbor was a bona fide, uh, you know, cargo location still. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, the, the, the unions and the mob made absolutely destroyed the cargo industry in New York. Now, a lot of it is now on the side of the river that I'm on now in Elizabeth, but I'm sure it's still a better deal in Charleston. Better deal in Charleston and between the unions and the mob, I'd much rather work with the mob because they're motivated by profit. So I think (laughs) I could figure something out with those guys if I had to. So, so those kind of changes are taking place, Yes, but so so is, is the overall trend, but then on the other hand, you have, I guess, trends, such as just-in-time inven- just inventory, which are efficient in the short term and potentially very profitable, but when there's a shock to the system. Right. So what we're seeing is we're seeing some interesting changes in how people are starting to think about the supply chain. One is a lot of companies are first, leaving- oh, You skipped the first one. They're thinking about the supply chain. Right? Fair enough. Hey, again, I, I'm used to wallowing in, in you know total anonymity right now, right? Okay. It's, well, time is this stuck. isn't necessarily the podcast to change that, but we'll, you know, every little step. You know? There you go. But what we're seeing is a lot of, a lot of people are leaving China. Uh, some of them are still staying in Southeast Asia, but going to places like Vietnam or Taiwan. Wait, but we'll, this is for what? This is- just moving their their manufacturing out of there so that oh. they can, you know, if if you look, this was a lot of this was done. So in other words, you're talking about the twelve thousand mile piece that you're talking about is stuff is being manufactured in the Far East, and then we're trying to get it here directly to essentially to consumers, drop shipping or just time inventory. Correct. But what we're also starting to see is two things. One of them is very interesting to me because no one's talking about it. Um, Chinese companies are investing heavily in manufacturing facilities in Mexico, primarily in the Monterey region. So they're trying to shorten their supply chains to their consumers by building plants in Mexico and shipping to the United States. But also we're seeing American country companies reinvest in manufacturing. Investment in manufacturing in the United States is up over 20% versus same period last year. So people are spending money to invest in manufacturing in the United States shorten up those supply chains, get rid of a lot of the disruptions that happened. I mean, a lot of the disruptions that happened, quite frankly, was because of China's zero COVID policy, where 
If they shut down the entire city of Shanghai, including the port, nothing could leave. They're changing that now, which is why they have over 200 million cases of new COVID, but they're still trying to, to figure that out. So a lot of companies just said, I'm going to move and I'm going to shorten the supply chain and I'm going to get credit for repatriating my supply chain from the, from the consumer. And it's worked very well for a lot of companies. So, all right, so that, so that's that piece and that's, and that's that piece. So, I mean, look, there's, there's also an argument along the lines of whatever planning you might do and whatever efficiencies or inefficiencies might exist in the system, there has historically never been a global policy of shutting down entire economies in order to react to the fear of getting sick. I mean, you don't really, there's really no way to plan for that because it's, it's a stupid policy. It's a self, yep. <laughs> you know, I mean. You can't fix stupid, right? So you got to <laughs> figure out a way to work around it. <laughs> so one of the things that Mrs. Coleman tells me about is that certain stores in our area, you know, supermarket that she goes to, never, they don't, they don't seem to have recovered. In other words, certain brands that she used to be able to get in, I don't want to say the name of the store because I don't want, it's not really their fault. I don't want to, you know, you know one bad mention on this podcast and the stock would just, <laughs> but you know, why can't I get bounty anymore? Why do I have to get this, you know, paper bird or, you know, like, you know, and my guess has always been that the crisis that these, some of these smaller groups of, of owner of, of, of maybe not like national chains, but you know, so you have people who own four or five supermarkets and, and I might license the name that they lost credit facilities or they, or, or their relationships with suppliers, you know, weren't able, able to recover for one reason or another. But it just, it just seems that by now I would expect things to look in the store the way they looked four years ago, but they don't. Do you, do you have any insight into that? There are a couple of things. And it's it's both, let's use your grocery example and continue that through. So one is on the manufacturing side. If you think about what's happened since COVID, a lot of folks got paid a lot of money not to go to work. And if I went from making, you know, 20 million rolls of paper towels a week to making 5 million rolls of paper towels a week, because I don't have the labor to do it anymore, someone's not going to get those 15 million rolls of paper towels that aren't there. Oh, okay. Right? And so that's part of it. And then the other part of it is, is also on the grocery side. They don't have the same folks to stock the shelves that they did before. And I don't know how it is for you in New Jersey, but I was, I was commenting um, when I was doing my Christmas shopping that they only had one line open with a real person to, to, to ring up your stuff. The rest of it was through these automated lines. So they're trying to cut down on the number of people. They're focusing on the things that are going to make them the most amount of money. And there's another trend in grocery which is on a private label and private label is huge because it makes them so much more money than a branded product. And at the end of the day, someone may come in looking for, for your wife's example, the bounty, but once she tries the, the blue duck version of uh, paper towel and it works, she's going to go back for the blue duck version and the store makes a lot more money on that. Well, Rosie in the diner would, would beg to differ. Well, unfortunately, Rosie's no longer with us. I don't believe Rosie's no longer with us, but every house has a Rosie in it. And I, I mean, I do think there's a very, you know, I used to do a lot of works as a, tra a lot of work as a trademark lawyer and branded, branded mm -hmm. enforcer. 
And, you know, brand, brands do exist for, for a reason, but I guess there, there's going to be a little bit of reshuffling after the sort of shock to the entire consumer expectation. Now, do, do you think in, in light of the changes that were are taking place, if God forbid we were to get another, you know, dose of stupidity where we, we, we had a policy again, like the one that was implemented a couple of years ago, would it look any different or are we still not ready to see any changes? Um, if we went and did the exact same thing that we did in 2020, you would see the same thing hit us. I think we'd recover from it faster. You may not see it in all the products. So for example, um, I think there's a lot of toilet paper and a lot of paper towels sitting in people's basements right now. So you may not see the run on toilet paper and paper towels that we saw back then, but you're going to see a run on a lot of stuff. And then it depends on how they're able to keep the supply chains going. I mean, just because we're seeing, like I mentioned earlier, a 20% uptick in the investment in manufacturing in the United States, that's not something you just throw a switch and it happens overnight. It takes time. So for example, you know, we had the, the, the CHIP Act where they're investing in building uh, microchips in the United States now instead of having them all built in Taiwan. Great, love it, not so sure I want the government doing it, but guess what? It's gonna take five years before those plants start putting out chips. So no matter what happens, nothing's going to change for five years. So by so now you mentioned chips, and and that lights another light a bulb above my shiny pate, which it which is this issue with the supply of cars. And so many of us, especially professionals, um, got very used to leasing, mm -hmm. and every three years, you know, this way, I'm not a car guy. I mean, I like cars. I enjoy driving a nice new car. And I, a certain amount of my travel, I can write off. And in other words, a, re a really smart economic actor buys, doesn't leases. But leasing has advantages. I don't, you, you don't want to, you know, you, you want to be in, 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 your, in warranty the whole time, whatever the reason. Okay. All of a sudden, a lot of people hit the end of their three-year leases in 21, 22. And they're used to, okay, I'll, you know, another 30, 40 bucks a month and I'll get something similar to what I had, or maybe I'll upgrade, I'll, you know, spring for 75 bucks. All of a sudden, everything is through the roof and you hear about chips and cars. Is, is, there, is there something going on besides the price of chips? It's, it's the availability. And, you know, I was, I was consulting in the automotive markets when that was happening. And I tell you what, people were willing to sell their children in order to get a, a plane load of chips to, to come in so they could build the cars. It's just, um, th and there was a, a perfect storm. There was a chip manufacturer in Japan that had a fire. So that shut, that took that one off the market. The Taiwan was going through a drought. So the government was limiting the amount of water that they could use to manufacture the chips. Chips are very water intensive when they're going through the fabrication process. And then we had the whole issue with, every other week China was shutting down and, and not shipping anything. So it was, it was really a perfect storm. The, the other thing that happened quite interestingly to me is suppliers just got tired and they gave up. Uh, they started saying things like, yeah, we don't have any of part X and it'll probably be seven or eight months before we get any of it. Whereas a year previous to that, they're like, we're out of this part, but here's all the things that we're doing to try to find it. There's just there's just a fatigue right now of people having worked so hard for so long to try to keep the supply chain running and not making the progress that they need to make that they just are giving up in a lot of instances. 
what I don't understand, though, is I actually used to be involved with a charity that makes a massive amount of money um, by buying used cars. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's obviously, there's a massive market in used cars in the world. And before this recent situation, the a large percentage of these off-lease cars would be sold abroad. To, you know, like there, 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 were, there just was a, there was a huge supply, and there were there were markets to all over the world to sell them uh, at all kinds of different price points. I would, what I've found is that, and what I've learned is that used, I mean, new cars have become so expensive that naturally the, the closest substitute being a used car economics 101 used cars have also become very very expensive um but i'm i, I don't understand it, it just i there have always been so many used cars and i don't well, understand what's going yeah shed some light on that for me <laughs> yeah think about it from this perspective um let's say that you're the, the end of your three-year lease of your your car is coming up and you hopped into the car drove down to the dealer and it's like hey um get me next year's model uh, and i want to upgrade to i don't know super surround sound and 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 self-driving right and now all of a sudden they're like well that's great but you can get that car in two and a half years yes so you then hang on to the car that you currently have you'll extend the lease maybe you buy it maybe you buy the car but you're taking it off the market and so so that was an issue that you saw the other major issue that you saw is so ironic. Uh, so excuse me, just ironically, that actually tightens the market even further, right? Because exactly. instead of my three years and out, I'm sticking with what I have. So everyone down, everyone in the system has one less off lease car to deal with. Exactly. So I mean, think about the instance where, again, I, I'll, I'll use a personal example. I. Um, wanted to buy a, a, a pickup truck because I've got a certain amount of redneck in me and I just wanted to be able to drive around in my pickup truck in case the zombie apocalypse happens. And um, No, because you're truck. actually Santa Claus and I see all the toys behind you. <laughs> and you were going to put them in the bed of the truck and give them to all the kids. I know. There you go. Absolutely. I, I may be the illegitimate child of Clark Griswold. I'm not sure. <laughs> that, but but I, I couldn't find a, a new truck. Every place I went, they they maybe had one on the lot and they were asking for sometimes ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars over list price. Yeah, that, yeah, I mean that's that's the other thing, right? Is that if there's a if whenever there's scarcity, that, that affects price, obviously. Yep. So I bought a used truck and I'm t- totally happy with it. And you know, we'll we'll go play Santa Claus with that later today. But what you spent on that used truck is is pretty close to what you would have spent on the new truck yes. four years ago. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the prices are coming down a bit as the, the chip situation works itself out. Uh, so one of the drivers in the consumer price index coming down uh, in November was the decrease in the cost of both new and used cars, but it's still not a major decline. And that's, again, those are, those are not needed goods that people have to buy. Those are optional goods that you can always decide to keep your car an extra three, six, 12 months before you get the new one. Um, but you know, inflation is still hitting people pretty hard in the areas where it counts. So how is it? So inflation is something that we're definitely talking about that we have not thought about since you and I were younger men. 
you know, it was, it was growing up in the seventies and, you know, until, until the uh, draconian monetary policies of Ronald Reagan, you know, it was, it was, it, it was, a, it was really an issue. And then it be, became less of an issue. I mean, we learned to live with a certain amount of they call core inflation, you know, uh, which was not a healthy thing, but 3% a year we could, you know, we could, we can handle. How does that affect the overall supply chain issues? Does it? it must. It must. I mean, and, and for me, and uh, this makes a lot of, you know, professional economists get mad at me, but I don't care. <laughs> uh, I, I think core inflation is the dumbest thing in the world to track because if you're a middle-class American, Guess what impacts you the most? It's food, it's gas, it's electricity. Those three categories for the average um, middle-class person other than the uh, the rent, that makes up two-thirds of their budget. So don't tell me that you need to back out the volatile you know, cost of gas because it doesn't really matter. It matters if you're the guy trying to figure out if you can fill up your car. Of course. So, we're, we're seeing those three, you know, I call those the basket of needs and uh, tap it to, uh, hat tip to Steve Cortez. He, he's the one that coined that phrase. Uh, but it's, it's, it's the, those areas are still high up, you know, eggs, airfare, butter, electricity, health insurance. Those are all areas that we're seeing inflation stay high. And the other thing, and, and, and this is something that, that frustrates me greatly is, you know, to use an analogy, if I gain 10 pounds over Thanksgiving and then over Christmas, I only gain five, that doesn't mean I'm losing weight. <laughs> yeah. right? That just means I'm gaining weight at a slower pace. And that's what's going on with inflation right now. Just because inflation goes from 8.3 down to 7.2 yeah, doesn't mean correct. inflation's down. It just means it's not growing as fast. No, that's right. And in fact, and also as, you know, as a, an economics major, I've always been interested in these issues. And I remember someone writing 10 years ago and the idea that we accept inflation of two to 3% as a given and as normal and as manageable merely because we once lived in a world where it was 10% is a, is a, is bad policy because two to 3% erodes savings oh, yeah. uh, over the long run and it discourages savings. And we have, become a nation of complete non-savers and it's 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 getting worse right now because of what's going on with with inflation so we're seeing about we're seeing the highest amount of uh, emergency withdrawals from 401ks right now than we've ever seen before people taking those money uh, that money out to use to buy necessities we're seeing more and more people use a credit card to to pay for the necessity so not just you know using the credit card at the gas pump but using it for for food or for rent and the challenge with that is that if you can't afford to pay your rent and then you put it on a credit card that's going to charge you 25% interest, you're going to default on your credit card eventually. And we're starting to see that that happen more right. and more. You're going to, your ability to afford the rent is, is only going to degrade as your, as your debt service increases. Absolutely. And of course, on a national level, we don't even, we don't even talk about debt anymore about government debt we don't have we don't pass budgets uh or or even worse we consider passing budgets like the one that's in congress now um i don't that's not gonna be our we can't it's just we can't go there but it's it's a it's it's a nightmare i want to you know talk a little bit about um this article that you wrote i'm going to throw it up on the screen 
in American Greatness, and you seem to get around. You write it in, in a lot of places. And it really struck a chord with me. We can't all run to Florida. This is from the end of October of this year. Chicago in the mid-80s. Guess what? I was in law school in 85 to 88 during the heyday of the Bears. Mm-hmm. Right? It was it was, it was was a great time to be in Chicago. And um, I remember when Water Tower Place was really still being fit out. And as I understand it now, retailers are actually walking walking away from their from their leases in Water Tower Place. It's become so unmanageable. But I just wanted to, before we talk about that, you were gonna leave Chicago and you said, no, I'm I'm not gonna run. This is we can't, you know, whether or not you're capable of living in Florida, which I'm I'm just not. I, I just don't <laughs> think I am. Um there's a there's something more cultural and more psychic and something else that you're writing about here. So why don't you? Yeah, and, and to start too is I don't begrudge anyone who packed who's packed up and left, right? So especially some of the, the higher profile guys like Ben Shapiro or uh, David Rubin who decided to move to Florida. Good on them. And if I had kids, Shapiro's kids' age, I'd probably be very much in line with with moving to some place that was a little bit more red. But as I was thinking about it, and then I did a little bit of research, what we can't do to our cities any longer is have the most educated, highest income potential people flee those cities for other areas and then put the burden of the taxes onto those who can least afford it and who aren't going to be as politically active and can change things. So people who have the means to stay and fight, I think we really need to stay and fight and, and try to change things from within. You know, you look at what's happened in a, in a city like Miami, right? Miami is now the largest red city in the United States. That took two years. It displaced Fort Worth as, a, as the largest red city. Am I saying that Chicago is going to become a red city? If I have something to do with it, it will, but it's not going to, it's not going to happen overnight. But we, we have to make a lot of changes. And part of those changes have to start with the Republican Party in Illinois, especially in Chicago. They've given up. They don't care. Yeah, they, didn't even, they, they didn't even bother to put up a mayor, a mayoral candidate this time. And that's just ridiculous. And that, I mean, so, so, you know, I remember one of the problems, the red cities and the states with these really major red cities in them, such as New York and Illinois and California, where even though you have these really, ex- I'm sorry, blue, these blue cities mm-hmm. and blue states where you, you look at the map and there are these huge expanses of red geographically but the the blue just so outweighs things it's hard to imagine how how that political change comes about because you know you have state governments that end up getting captured by these cities and, and and making policy for the entire state. This happens in New Jersey, where I live as well, where there's really, there's a, there's the urban Northeast, which is by far where most of the people live in New Jersey. And the rest of the state is much, much redder, much, much redder. But policies made in Trenton by people who mostly, you know, who are sent there from other counties. One thing that one of the advantages of people, you know, who can making moves to red states is that it does enhance the sort of um, 
the jurisdictional competition for business and for rateables and for people who can pay tax. But that's, you know, that's, that might take decades to play out. And what we've seen in the case of cities like Detroit and Cleveland, although there's been a bit of a renaissance in Cleveland, but, you know, a lot of the Rust Belt cities, Detroit being the most obvious and saddest example, is that as bad as it gets, the people there are prepared to keep the people at, to, to keep doubling down on reelecting the people who keep making it, who, who got it that bad and keep making it worse. So I, I hear you, but I'm going to push back a little bit on you there. Please. Um, part of the challenge, especially and I'll use Chicago as an example. The Republicans have no ground game in Chicago at all. These these underserved neighborhoods where moms aren't worried about critical race theory being taught in school, they're worried about their kid getting killed on the way home from school, right? No one's reaching out to those people on behalf of the Republicans saying, here's my idea. I wanna make your school safe for your children. I wanna make your streets safe for your children. Here's how I'm going to do that. Here are some of the areas where I'm going to invest. Here's how I'm going to, um, change the thought process so that we have schools that actually put out students who can read and write when they're done. That's what these moms care about. And if you're not knocking on doors, you're never going to get those people. And that's something that I think we need to do. And I, you know, I, I come back to something Giuliani said when he lost his first run for mayor in New York, which was, it's not bad enough yet. And unfortunately, I think we have to get to that point where it's got to get a little bit worse where people like me can go talk to people who don't look like me and they'll listen. And I'm ready to jump in and, and help those folks out because they're getting the short end of the stick every darn day as more and more people flee the city. I mean, I, I think part, I part, you know, part of the complication is for New York, you, you can never learn anything from New York because New York doesn't deserve to be in even as good condition as <laughs> in today. But because it, it it successfully trans because it always had the status as a financial center, there was always money in the system. So despite mm -hmm. the fact that when I you know when I was, you know, uh, in, in my early teens and New York was just an absolute hellscape, um, the money the Wall Street was still there, and when they started making a concerted effort to clean things up there was still an economy, even though manufacturing, there was no, there wasn't going to be any more manufacturing. There was, no, the, the, you know, that was all over. Um, but you had, you had Wall Street and then, and in the, by virtue of cleaning things up, they developed this incredible tourist industry, mm -hmm. which you're not going to do in Detroit. That's not there, you know, and, and plus these other cities. So LA always has show business, although they don't pay any taxes at all. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's ridiculous, um, but these other cities in general, the, one of the problems. I mean, Chicago is actually a pretty good example of this too. City, we have to think of cities differently, don't you think? From the way they were thought of as, what? Why do we have cities? So, you know, Chicago is on the Chicago River. It's on. It's on the. It's on Lake Michigan. It was there because it was a a cargo location and, and it became a manufacturing location. 
those things are, are much less relevant now. In fact, cargo doesn't want to come into a big city anymore because there's too much congestion. So, but the cities are their own reason for existence. Chicago is Chicago, and that's why it has to survive. In other words, it's, a, it is, it's in the national interest that Chicago not become Detroit. Because it's because there's a there's a cultural thing called Chicago now. There's a great city and there's a way of life associated with urban life that is extremely that's central to to the way Americans live in the 21st century. Yeah. No, I, I I hear you, but I tell you what, I don't know if you know anybody who grew up in Detroit. Those folks love that city more than you can even imagine, and. There's a lot. There's a good amount of folks who are willing to to work to try to change it. There, things things need to be different. You're not going to turn Detroit into a tourist location, but you could you could change some of the manufacturing that's done there. Um, I mean, one of the things that we saw during the um, the trucker strike in Canada when they shut down the bridges is how reliant we are on auto parts coming across the bridge from Canada into um, the suburbs of Detroit for manufacture. There's no reason why we couldn't revamp some of those manufacturing locations in Detroit if we got the right folks in there. What we have to do, though, is you've got to get rid of the corruption. You've got to get rid of everything. I, I lived briefly in, in Detroit, uh, and when I worked at um, a consulting company, we actually approached the mayor and said, here's our idea on how we can get rid of all these bombed out buildings. And they had zero interest in it. Absolutely no interest. Really? But he wanted a donation, but no interest in having to in fixing the the bombed out buildings. Uh, and what, excuse my naivete, why do you suppose that was? Because there was, I mean, I'm not going to be so cynical as to say because there was no money in it for them. There was no, they didn't, did they not think that there would be political advantage of being the guy who made this neighborhood livable again? I, I think it really does come back to there's not enough money in it. And to to revitalize something like that takes a number of years to to happen and if you're only looking at the next election, right, then you're not necessarily going to be worried about trying to fix something that's going to take six years to fix. You're looking at doing something that gets you in the headlines or gets you at least the cash that you need for the next election. Now, do you have any understanding? I, I think I saw some, um, you know, the, the light of recognition there when I mentioned that Cleveland seems to have found some kind of what did they do right there? So, and Detroit's actually starting to do it a little bit as well. The, the, the number one thing that you need to do, you can build all of the attractions downtown that you want, but unless you get people to actually live there, yeah, nothing's yeah. going to happen. If, if you come down for the baseball game, have a couple of beers after the game, and then you're, you're going back to your nice home in the suburbs after it's over, you're not going to see a lot of change. And that's why, I mean, you went to Northwestern Law School, an area like uh, Rogers Park in Chicago is never really going to, that's one of the areas in Chicago, they always talk about, it's ready to turn, it's ready to turn, but everyone there rents, no one owns, so there's 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 no ownership of anything. What you saw them do in Cleveland, they put in the sports stadiums, they put in a whole bunch of bars and restaurants, but they also built condos for younger people, and they they encouraged the young folks to, to move in there. Listen to how old I sound now, encouraging the young folks, but they, they, they were able to get a different generation of people to move into the downtown area, you're seeing some of that in Detroit now too. So hopefully it'll continue. Yes. And, and I, I also think that that is something that, although I think Philadelphia in the last couple of years has taken a gigantic step backwards, Yes, but they were on this very encouraging path. I, I you know, I, rem I remember being in Philadelphia, you know, 15, 20 years ago, and it was, it was pretty, pretty bad and pretty dead. 
And then about five years ago, I was, wow, there's all this street life and all these, you, you know, all these students and young people. And I knew people who, you know, relatives of mine who were, you know, professionals who were moving into condos there. And it was, it was this really, the success story of uh, urban renewal as, you know, the modern version of urban renewal and the, the way that you just described it, it all unraveled. It all unraveled so fast, and Philadelphia has become. I, and I, I remember going there to do some election work in 2020, and being told, "You don't. After hours, you're not walking on the street. Okay, you get in a car. It's well, not. An option. That's what happens when you put George Soros district attorneys in place that don't prosecute crime. Right? Crime runs rampant. I mean, we've got Kim Fox here in Chicago. Same same thing." Um, when the criminals don't feel that they're going to suffer a repercussion, they become more and more brazen in what they do. Uh, that's why I still jump back to what Giuliani did, the, the turnstile jumpers. Those are the same guys that are going to rob you and the same guys that are going to mug you and the same guys are going to rape you and kill you. And what we have now is the exact opposite of that policy, San Francisco being the most famous, but also obviously Portland and Seattle. Your trivial crimes, are, we're going to invite you to commit trivial crimes. Well, they just passed a, a new law goes into effect in, in Illinois on the first. It's called the Safety Act, which is the exact opposite of what it is. Uh, basically takes away cash bail for everything except for second and first degree murder. Unbelievable. And they're going to come take the guns away, too. So the law abiding citizens who need to protect themselves from the criminals won't have guns. But uh, the criminals won't have to do any time in jail when they uh, get arrested. But you're sticking it out. But you're sticking I'm gonna it try. out. I'm going to try. I'm too dumb to quit. <laughs> I get it. Listen, I, I was talking to a friend of mine. Uh, I went to an event in New York last, a social event last week. And I said, I, you know, the city really looks like it's come back to a large extent. I mean, I'm not getting on the subway. I used to be comfortable going on the subway anytime and day and night. I don't see that happening again until they stop using it as a de facto homeless shelter. But she agreed with me that there's something about it, if you if you love it, that makes you overlook the you know the danger and the expense i've always said that it's you know for you it's chicago for for me it's new york it's like having an alcoholic relative <laughs> you know they're going to embarrass you you know they're going to ask you for money you know that it's there's going to be tears but you love them you know thank god i don't have any alcoholic relatives but <laughs> But, but this is what I imagine it must be like. The analogy works quite well. So, so thank Jim, great talking to you and having a different kind of conversation about things that people don't think about all the time. Um, I see that you're on your Fox uh, Fox News contributor. Uh, you know, uh, any, any uh, googling you comes up with all kinds of information. Uh, you've been on on a number of other podcasts as well. Is there any place we, the people who are interested in your work, you say you're, you're working on a book. Is there a book that's already been out? Is it no, it's, it's, it's coming out. A um, couple of places to find me. I do a lot of writing on the national pulse. You can find me there. And then also on Substack. Substack guy, huh? Trying to be. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I don't know. It's complicated. It's complicated out there. A lot of, a lot of the world of distribution of value i'm thinking talking like an economist now but distributing value whether it's media ideas um silicon chips cars quality of life even has gotten 
complicated. So we've got guys like you to help us figure it out. I'm really glad to have met you today and spoken. And I thank you very much for coming on. It was my pleasure. Hope to talk to you again soon. So long. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day. Hey.